So I think for folks, some of us are probably very familiar with the traditional refuges. Uh, some of us may have never encountered them before. Um, and uh, this is just the, the way that they're, that they're taken at IMS, Insight Meditation Society, and uh, at other places in this tradition. Uh, you're invited to join me or, or not join me uh, as you like. We'll stay muted just because when there's multiple voices on Zoom, it can be a little cacophonous. Uh, so we will, unfortunately won't have the experience of kind of saying them in, in unison. Even less fortunately, you'll, you'll hear me <laughs> chanting them. So please join me if you feel moved. Just in the poly. Pudam saranam gachami Dhammam saranam gachami Sangam saranam gachami Turiyampi Buddham saranam gachami Tutiyampi Dhammam saranam gachami Turiyampi Sangam saranam gachami Tatiyampi Buddham saranam gachami Tatiyampi Dhammam saranam gachami Tatiyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami. I kind of love taking the refuges. Um, I love them partly for what they say, but partly for what they feel which is kind of what I'd love to talk a little bit about this evening. And I should say, we'll have time uh, also for, for Q&A and comments uh, at the end as well. I think for certainly uh, some, of, some of tonight's words come from my current work, uh, which is working for 10% Happier, which I just described as we're not Buddhist, but we are Buddhist adjacent. Um, and we're trying, we're in the, in the secular mindfulness world, trying with integrity uh, to bring mindfulness to people who either haven't encountered it, but certainly don't have a, may have a conception of what Buddhism means, but don't identify in that way. And that's a, a you know, hopefully a skillful means. Um, and yet I was also reflecting for me and what's, what's sometimes lost in that process. It's a very complicated process. It's complicated in, in many ways, trying to be respectful to the tradition um, while also going in a slightly different direction. And one of the pieces that gets lost for me uh, is this aspect of the, not, the non-rational uh, reasons why we connect with the Dharma in the ways that we do. Um, I often, during the pandemic, found my own Dharma practice to be a consolation. Um, and even in that word consolation, the English word consolation, there's something really sweet that consolation doesn't mean that I'm denying or changing what's there, but just that I'm there's, it's like, I have company in it. Console 
has that that root of being with it's like company and it seemed like a a, a a nice way to approach the concept of refuge which again i know many of us are familiar with sarana the idea of taking refuge or shelter in the buddha and the dharma and the sangha obviously we're living in stormy times um it does feel like we sort of have this sort of a roulette wheel of dukkha that spins just when we think we're finished with one spin, we get a different spin. So there's, you know, there, there's pandemic dukkha and erosion of democracy dukkha and the reassertion of injustice and white supremacy dukkha and there's climate change dukkha. And that's just on the public sphere. Uh, in addition to all of our personal of just being alive and these are stormy times these are these are painful times uh in for for many of us i would venture to even say for all of us um you know seeking consolation is different from seeking tools or techniques or information or even practices um and sometimes i felt that a strange phenomenon in what's sometimes called maybe a bit of a misnomer, but what's sometimes called Western Buddhism, where it can almost feel like a, a, a guilty pleasure to, to, be, to come to the Dharma for consolation, as opposed to for this, you know, brilliant science of meditation and wonderful philosophy of, you know, the impermanence or whatever it is. Um, obviously, that's not true in for the vast majority of practicing Buddhists on the planet for whom consolation and refuge are central. Um, you know, there's arguably it's even more central than any of those sort of rational technology oriented reasons why we might be interested in the Buddhist path, of whether that manifests as faith uh, or in any of the sort of more traditionally religious contexts of Buddhism, which again is the vast majority of practicing Buddhists in the world. Um, Sometimes in the Western context, these non-rational elements can be left behind and even implicitly and sometimes explicitly, but even implicitly uh, denigrated as though that's not as central as that's, that's good. You know, yeah, go to the Buddha for refuge, but yeah, but not that religious stuff sometimes. I think that's a loss if that kind of attitude is taken on. Um, Obviously, each of us relates to the sort of mythic and religious content of the Buddhist traditions in plural in different ways. But sometimes there's this tendency to define ourselves, uh, if not in direct opposition to it, then certainly in, in contrast with it. And some of this is from, comes historically from what's been called Buddhist modernism, um, the two stages really of adaptation of Buddhism, first by at first as a post-colonial anti-colonialist enterprise uh, by South Asians and East Asian Buddhist practitioners uh, to reassert the their traditions, Dharmic traditions, in the context of resistance to colonialism. And in that context, it sometimes was skillful means to emphasize the, the, the non-specifically religious the non-so-called superstitious elements uh, in Buddhism. And then when, after that process took place and Westerners encountered it, there may have been another sort of cycle of demystification that took place for many of us. Um, 
And so I reflect on a little bit what's, what's lost in that process and how, for me, actually, I want to reclaim some of those elements of consolation, uh, both as a queer person and as a queer religious person who operates in multiple religious traditions or contemplative traditions. Um, I know that I'm nourished precisely by some of those same impulses uh, that I share with people who identify as religious in ways that are scandalous or horrifying to me. Uh, and it's a challenge. Well, my religion's the good religion because it's not the bigoted one or my religion's, my, my faith is faith in confidence and experience, not blind faith. And there are all these mechanisms that I find I sometimes create uh, to avoid the human existential need that so many of us feel for consolation. It's interesting that to become a lay follower of the Buddha in the, in the suttas, in the Pali Canon, really just con consisted of two elements, the refuges and taking the precepts. Um, you didn't have to promise to meditate 20 minutes a day, you know, in the morning and in the evening. And you didn't have to wear special robes. That's for the, for the nuns and the monks, of course. To be a lay follower uh, in the suttas is to take the refuges, and, and to commit to the precepts, um, which could be another talk, of course. In other words, that, that aspect of that, that orientation of, of refuge and of consolation and of shelter um, is a defining characteristic of, of being a lay follower of the Buddha uh, in that tradition. So what might those three aspects look like in a, in a consolation way that feels that for me are affirming? In uh, Samyutta Nikaya 4850, the Sada Sutta, the Sutta about faith, it said that faith is like one's partner. Um, I love that that's just a pun in English, right? It's not, it means partner as in, you know, your friend partner, but I kind of love that it might also be a romantic partner as well. Um, for me, that notion that there's someone else or others here carrying this burden of humanity, that might be that kind of partnership that I look toward. When I think of taking refuge in the Buddha, I know that I have personally been on kind of a journey around that. I think the first time that I ever recited the precepts, I was worried that it was against my Jewish religious practice uh, to do so. It felt like that might be, that might be a no-no uh, from my Jewish side. Um, eventually I came to a place of how I understand the precepts that uh, made them not a no-no. And eventually I then got to the place where I didn't care if it was a no-no. <laughs> that's, my, that's my 10 or 15 year journey on that. For some of us, it is taking refuge in the example of the Buddha. I also think of the teachers who are living examples uh, for us of what the path can look like. Um, there's a kind of trust in the Dharmic path that can come because it works for them. Now, sometimes I might project too much onto my teachers and imagine them to be more perfect than they are. But I can say that now having worked with most of the teachers who I thought were deities, of some kind or another, they're not. Um, and it's not just that they're flawed human beings like the rest of us, but they're wonderful human beings like the rest of us. 
And there could be something lovely even in that projection, that aspect of projecting the parts of our the parts of ourselves that we see in our teachers or imagine in our teachers or the parts of ourselves that we see in the Buddha. Right. Well, here's someone who did the thing. <laughs> and and who knows? You know, it looks like they it looks like they had some success with that, but success even is almost too information-y. You know, there's a loving relationship, even in a non-guru tradition. Uh, to the teachers and to uh, and to the Buddha as well. As I was reflecting on this, I, I think too about my work in in queer communities in Western religious traditions, particularly Judaism and Christianity, knowing that anytime that happens, there's a kind of complex seeing. That's a, a Brecht term from Bertolt Brecht, where I see that and I do empathize with that, while also knowing that I'm not them. I'm certainly not a male nobleman from the axial age, Northern India, um, who made some, you know, potentially questionably ethical life choices in his life. Who knows what he would have thought of me. Um, And there's like a little bit of distancing, even in that taking of refuge that I find very helpful, that I find really salutary. Um, I've never been one to want to fully give myself over to a guru. I know for many people that's very nourishing and that's fine. I'm not debating that. But for me personally, I actually draw a certain kind of comfort that there's always that complexity. There's the complex seeing that I don't see exactly myself in the teacher, whether it's a capital T teacher or not. Um, That feels actually in a certain kind of, a certain way it sort of feels like safety. And in a certain way, it feels like epistemological humility. Um, because I know that there's not the we, that we're all one we. We're all the same in this way. And I think that's a, that recognition of difference, certainly from my social position now, is something that I just need to remind myself of every day so that I don't assume that people who aren't with my gender identity or 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 race or background or economic status, you know, there's an assumption that privileged folks like me can make that this is what psychology is. This is what humanity is. And I know from seeing that difference between myself and my teachers, that that's also true between all of us. I find that safety, that complexity to be really nourishing, not diminishing, but enriching. I'll say more about that in just a moment. So there's that taking refuge in the teacher and the taking refuge in the teaching in the Dharma. Um, I find this happens really psychologically. It can happen really uh, very viscerally when I'm starting to sit for meditation and and having a a lot of challenge uh, in life. The attitude that I've had has sometimes been like, I sit down feeling like I'm just going to do this thing. Uh, I don't really know why. I can't think about why I'm too anxious or fearful or angry or whatever to come up with a reason. So I'm just going to do this thing. And there's that trust that I'm just going to do it somewhere between trust and desperation. Um, I was just reading a Zen text, which suggested exactly that attitude for like Shikantaza, just sitting, like having no motivation, no intention, and just sitting. I, I could claim that that was my own motivation, but really it was much more prosaic. Like I just don't have any it's, I, don't, I don't have any resources in this moment. 
And so I'm taking refuge in the dharmic resources that are there. And who knows what, what the result might be. If it's this kind of sit or a bad, or this bad sit or good sit or all those kinds of very misleading characterizations, who knows? There's that, there's the consolation of just coming back to the breath of just, oh, okay, I can still be here. And it's that centering quality is for me of immense consolation when there's so much challenge present. Even in the good times, there's that consolation. I used to feel like sometimes my, Dharma, my, my Buddhist Dharma practice was like the ants at the picnic, you know, like things were so good. And now I had to remind myself that it's all impermanent and suffering and it's all not even my, mine or anything. And it seemed like kind of a bummer, uh, but I don't feel that way uh, anymore. It feels so, I'm so happy to kind of remember, like, oh, right. There's also this other way of seeing things, even in a moment of bliss or joy. I find that consoling as well uh, because those moments of bliss and joy are impermanent and they are dukkha if they're clung to and they are not me, I, me or mine. So there's a real consolation even in the delight. Like I, I can sort of enjoy the bliss for what it is rather than for what it isn't. And I, again, I don't, find, I don't find that to be a diminishment of the joy or the ecstasy or whatever. I find it really consoling in that moment. Like here's this fantastic moment. And also, oh, that's right. It's also of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, down the whole dharmic line. So both when things are difficult, there's the consolation that I think is maybe more immediately recognizable, but also when things are pleasant, um, there's just that reminder of, of don't worry, this isn't it. <laughs> this, is, this is what it is. It's lovely. Uh, and here's this moment of gratitude. Here's the, I, I, I think I'll probably forever remember the, the hugging grandma moment, which happened was it April, this last April, I guess, when my, my daughter, who's uh, just about to turn four, hugged grandma for the first time in, in over a year. I mean, what a lovely moment. Um, and that, that moment was also, was also surrounded by so much sorrow for so many people, people who didn't get the hugging grandma moment. And our own time of being apart from, from my, my partner's uh, mother. And there's something so lovely, I think, in feeling and being in, in that embodied human emotional moment, while at the same time having that consolation of knowing it's not more than what it is. It's beautiful in what it is. So when I think about taking refuge in the sangha and the consolation that that brings me in a funny way that maybe is obvious when we're at a, a space like inside out right it's so lovely to be with people who both have the sort of buddhist kit in mind and connection uh, so we both have the strange same similar hobby but also are on various spectrums of queerness of gender or sexuality and that's so lovely there's a real consolation in the shared vocabulary, the shared way of seeing, even the shared pitfalls that we all fall into as practitioners. There's consolation in the specificity and finding commonality. And yet at the same time, I remember I started sort of a Jewish version of this 
of, of Insight Out, which was a spiritual Jewish queer organization, LGBT, as we called it back then. And I think when I started it, there was a sort of naive idea of sameness, again, that, that we would all come together because we're having the same experience. But definitely, I think one of the great lessons of queerness is that that's not actually where the value is, that the value doesn't lie in this illusory sameness, but that it lies precisely in all of the various multiplicities that we inhabit, sometimes in our own lifetimes, different, in, inhabiting different ways of being and different ways of seeing. So in a way, that, that consolation or that, that refuge in Sangha is for me a, maybe a redefinition of what I think Sangha to be. Not that there is some self intrinsic to each of us that we share, but that precisely we're sharing our non-sameness. Uh, queer as in queer, right? As in different, as in askew, or as, a, as in multiple. Um, that for me also allows me to interact in more traditional Buddhist sanghas, which may have very different dharmic interpretations from my own. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Robert Chang, wrote his dissertation on uh, Asian diaspora Buddhist communities. And he had to come up with a term to describe what they were. And the term that he used uh, for his academic work was non-liberal Buddhist communities, which was a nice way of not projecting our agenda of like, here's what conservative means, but saying, cause that has its own, right? That has a specific definition and resonance and not necessarily appropriate for the communities he was studying. Um, but right, that's a thing, right? That there are the, these are the non-liberal Buddhist communities, and often there's there can be some tension um, for me that might arise, and you know, here I want to contest some identity or say why this one is right and that one is wrong, and remembering that even within the the alphabet sanghas or the queer sanghas that are these quadruple overlaps of of different uh, identity or different. Um, different perspectives that there is that difference that's still there even in even within the the niche um of course it's lovely to be with folks who are family uh, but like any family we there's there's difference within that family hmm. sometimes there's also a consolation i think that many of us can derive from communities like this if we have in our life histories leaving toxic home traditions, or in my case, leaving and then coming back to and significantly adapting and changing uh, our home traditions, whether those are cultural or religious or other. There can be something wonderfully consoling about fellow exiles coming together in a way. And um, I find that moving. Um, it's, it's a real source of, it is a source of consolation for me. Um, not, that's not true of everyone in, in our, everyone in this, in this space, but it's true for a lot of us. So in each of these ways of finding consolation, I've noticed that there is a consolation that I yearn for, but that I also push away. And that's what I would close with before we uh, eager to hear some of your perspectives. And you can feel free when we get to questions, if you want to speak them that's fine. You can kind of uh, raise your hand, or if you prefer to type them into the chat, that's also fine. For me, there's there's sometimes a, what I would call a, 
a child's consolation that I do yearn for, which is that mommy or daddy make everything okay. And I, I honor that yearning. Um, I remember there was one time I was working with uh, plant medicines and I had this vision of all of the different manifestations of uh, the divine and in various patriarchal traditions is all these father figures. So my first reaction was like, oh, just projecting the father figure. But in that experience, I then thought, wait a minute, the father figure, (laughs) that's a big deal. (laughs) And then what if we had traditions where we're projecting the mother figure as well? That would be a big deal. What if we had different parental figures? These it's not just a psychological, some sort of Freudian projection. It, that's actually a big thing, right? So it's not that I don't, I, that's not that I want to get away from that form of consolation, but as, a, as an adult, it's that for me, the queerness is inherent in at once seeking the consolation and knowing that our, ourselves, our differences aren't erased in the consummation of that consolation. It's sometimes I think I can have a tendency of taking refuge as a way of escaping responsibility and erasing my own difference. And there's that tendency. But for me, the joyous, ambivalent consolation of the triple gem of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha is precisely that that consolation is available without the effacing of difference because in those differences and every dividing line is a, is a conquering line and those differences are implicit heart in the, in the idea that we can somehow efface those differences. Um, that itself can be a exercise of power that we should be afraid of. So I'm all for that ambivalent consolation. And I wouldn't want to leave it on the shelf. There's something so heartwarming about Dharma and Sangha and Buddha that isn't reducible to meditation or to practice. And I find myself increasingly drawn to it the stormier the storm gets. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.